that it? Okay. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the second Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for Rewinding Your Body Clock with Janie Goddard. And today she has a very special guest who is backed by popular demand, Dr. Frank Sabatino, and they're going to teach us how we can kiss our stress goodbye. Please welcome them both to the show. Hey guys, thank you. Thank Hi, you. Thank you. Thank you. Always, always nice to be here. It's great. Yeah. A dynamic duo. So <laughs> kiss, that, stress is really, uh, that's something that, uh, you, you remember how Dr. Goldhammer says it's like Christmas, it's better to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually yes, really good. That, that does sound that. like a Dr. Goldhammer quote. Yes, for sure. <laughs> well, we can't seem to get rid of stress, but hopefully it'll give us some techniques, at least that we can learn how to manage it more effectively. That's right, AJ. I mean, this is absolutely key. You know, it, it, it's one of the things that sort of gets my goat um, occasionally, which is where people talk about stress management. And I know that Frank agrees with this. Uh, you, we can't manage stress because stress is going to happen to us. Stressors will impact our lives. You know, you'll be happily sort of wandering around doing your thing and then out of left field on a Tuesday afternoon, bang, you know, stress, a stressor happens. So we can't manage that. Um, we can't sort of preempt stressors as they appear in our lives necessarily most of the time. Um, but what we can do is we can actually learn to manage our response to those stressors. So this is all about, this session today is all about learning what we can do and really skilling ourselves up so that we can actually have tools that we can use for ourselves and we can teach our loved ones and share um, to you know far and wide, as far and wide as we possibly can, uh, that will actually help us to manage things when everything goes horribly south, as it will do in all of our lives from time to time. Great. Can't wait to hear your uh, tips and tricks. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a thing to articulate right out of the box, because um, there is a difference between stress and what that means and the way we respond to it. And, and really, that speaks to the very heart of personal perception and consciousness. And that's a big piece, because some of those things we can really dramatically alter by how we frame the experiences. So for example, you know, you, the, the, you can have uh, a response to something, but the body interprets stress. It has to have two things that start off. It has to have a fear response, number one, because it's actually interpreting an event as either a threat or a challenge in some way, an overwhelming way. So there's a part of the brain called the amygdala that sets up a fear response. That has to happen before you trigger all the ways the body responds to stress. If you actually get an event in your life and you're able to reframe that in a way that no longer presents it as fear and challenge, even though it may be a challenging event, it actually short circuits the entire process in the body. So that's why we always talk about the fact that stress is not necessarily in the events of our lives. It's in the perception of those events. And many times you can't change the event. If you can, bless you, do it. But if you can't, what you can do is reframe and refashion your response to it. And I think that's a big piece for survival. Because if you don't do that, you become, you're at the beck and whim 
of every small event and challenge in your life and you will lose any resilience of handling life on a daily basis. So this is a very big subject, a very big area because, uh, and it's one of my favorites, only because it speaks to, you know, what can we do to look at things differently? What can we do to interpret things in a different way so that we don't have to keep triggering this underlying survival response that we have that is really on the job trying to help us survive in the environment? Mm, absolutely. Frank, can you talk about some of the reasons why we've developed a stress response and how sort of it's how sort of the evolutionary side of, of uh, you know, stress and why it's actually protective? Because I think a lot of people think, tend to think, oh, stress is always negative. Um, so without getting yeah, yeah, into... Yeah, let, let's yeah. address that because stress is a really a, a, an umbrella term that's a very high level abstraction because it, it means different things to most people. But as you make a point, most people see it as a negative thing. For someone to perform in front of a crowd, for someone to be an athlete doing a performance, a certain amount of stress is very positive. It can actually motivate a better performance for, for a performer, an athlete, anybody. Um, there's a biological concept, and, and I, we've talked about it before, the concept of hormesis. And in hormesis, the idea is that adapting to low levels of stresses and challenge actually makes us stronger, makes us more biologically successful, more genetically successful. It's like that old line, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, there's actually a biological mechanism for that. So stress can have some very positive tone to it, it can actually create some very positive ways that we adapt in the world. But then of course, then we have the catastrophic events that are overwhelming stressors, or you know, we have the gnawing, nagging, bitching stresses of interpersonal relationships and the way most people think about stress. So stress covers all of that. So what we have to address then is what is the way that the body deals with stress. And when it does do that, what can we do to turn that on or turn that off with our own perception and how we look at the world? So there are both positive and negative aspects to stressors and how we interpret those really sets up a very ancient evolutionary response that we all have. And that is the ability to fight or run away from that event. So if I perceive a challenge and I have a fear response where I'm seeing that as a survival challenge, a whole set of circumstances are established in my body now that allow me to do one of two, actually one of three things. I could either fight that situation head on. The better part of valor may be to turn around and run away from it. And there's actually a third response that very few people talk about. And that is if that stress seems so overwhelming that somewhere I really believe there's nothing I can do to make a difference. There's a third response. I can lay down and play dead. And that's called the Thanatos response. And that's actually a very parasympathetic response of survival and actually triggered in a way by many of the traditional stress management techniques. So understand that we have a very ancient physiological system that is set in motion by fear and challenge. It's really set in motion to help us survive, but it's really set in motion to be turned on and off relatively quickly in relationship to events that we encounter. 
And so the changing nature of stress is what gets us into trouble. So let's start, stop there. Any, any comments related to any of that? I don't think so, Frank. I think that's actually um, incredibly well put, as always, of course. Um, and I do think that uh, it, it's quite intriguing that people tend to uniformly believe that stress is a universally bad thing. Um, but I think there's an element of stress that we do also need to introduce into the, into the discussion, that of eustress, and that there are certain types of stress that can actually make a dramatic difference to our health and well-being. So just wondering if you wanted to cover that uh, for everybody at the moment. Well, you know, when I was doing my research on aging, this is because this we're talking about aging too, I, I was very privy to being part of those original studies on calorie restriction and longevity. So we knew that when you restricted calories by 30 to 40% in animals that, you know, rats, and it's been done with everybody, the animals on the restricted calories would live 50% longer, which, you know, kind of blew the mind of the entire scientific community. How could they do that? But I did a subset of studies in that paradigm because I was very fortunate to be part of the original research group that was doing a lot of that work. We were doing what are called tail bleeds, where you would go in in the middle of the night on these animals and you would nick their tails, take a blood supply, measure stress hormones like cortisol and so on. And it was intriguing that the higher cortisol levels from the tail nick was a classic example of this concept of the hormesis. It actually increased longevity the animals that had modest levels of stressors actually lived longer and actually elevated stress hormones a little bit longer. So when you talk about the use stress, yes, there is a component of us adapting in the world to a certain amount of moderate, modest levels of stress that actually promote health and longevity. The problem is when the stressors that we encounter become more significant and more ongoing, where we're not letting that go, where we're not responding well in present time. And that's where that whole idea of mindfulness and present time awareness. So for example, in the mind-body connection, we know that there are certain things that happen uh, with stress. For example, stress in caregivers, these, it's a model for stress evaluation. Caregivers have suppressed immunity. They have slower wound healing, they're more prone to bacterial infection. So here's a case where a stress was actually translating into body outcome. We know that when cortisol is released under stress, it creates inflammatory changes in blood vessels. It causes uh, white blood cells called macrophages to go into an area of inflamed blood vessel tissue, and they will engulf cholesterol, become fatty foam cells and play a role in the plaque that forms in blood vessels. So there's a direct relationship between chronic stress and plaque formation in blood vessels. And of course, the, uh, the Blackburn studies on, on aging and chronic stress in women, where women under chronic stress were, had cells that were aging almost 10 to 15 years longer on average compared to women who didn't have the chronic stress of caregiving disabled children, their own children. So we see incredible um, connection between more chronic levels of stress 
and literally changes in the body that are profound in blood vessel change and aging changes of the gene pool uh, and so on and so forth. So when you say, you know, you stress and bad stress, the, the common denominator is how are we turning on the fight or flight response? How long are we turning it on? And is there something we can do in our behavior that allows the brain to shut it off? Because understand something, the fight or flight response is a whole series of reactions that the body creates to make sure that muscles are getting the amount of oxygen and energy they need so that you and I can fight or run away. I mean, if you think about it, no matter what we experience physically, emotionally, or spiritually, the only way we can carry it out in the field of, the, of our environment is through our nervous and muscular system. The neuromuscular system is the vehicle for action. So anytime we need to act, that's what has to be taken care of. So all the flight or fright responses are really designed to get as much blood and oxygen into those muscles in the shortest period of time. So we have an increase in muscle tension, increase in blood pressure, increase in heart rate, digestive system is shut down. So energy could be diverted to the muscles. Uh, the immune system is suppressed. Libido is suppressed. Everything is being kind of curtailed and suppressed to drive energy into those muscles in the shortest period of time so we can fight or run away. And that's very positive. It's essential for survival. The problem is if that stress lingers or if you maintain that stress response in your life, you turn that physiological system, that fight or flight system on to an extent where it, no, it kind of outlives its usefulness. Because what happens then is that, remember, fight or flight response was designed to help us survive in the moment, to become very present. So if you threaten me or some animal threatens me, I deal with that and I move on. The problem is in modern times, we have abstractions of communication and all the stresses of relationships. So there's not a clear, concrete threat, tribe, or animal. So we take a physiological system that was created for our survival and we turn it on endlessly because of our concerns about the past or our worries and anxieties about what may happen in the future. And so we turn this machine on this fight or flight machine that now creates, if you think of what are the actions of fight or flight, high blood pressure, cardiac change, changes in respiration. Many people are running to doctor's offices on a daily basis, trying to medicate out of existence the very actions of fight or flight that were actually set in motion for our benefit. And they're only there because we've created a situation where we've turned this on and haven't allowed it to be turned off. And that's why if unless you can get into a more present time awareness, you will still be lost in the past, worried about the future, and this system will just be on running, what you're calling the stress response. Because in a way, it's not even responding to a concrete stress anymore. It's got kind of a life of its own and it's generating. And I use the example, you know, our, our listeners, our watchers could relate to this. How many people out there have ever argued with a loved one? Okay, everybody's hands go up, right? <laughs> but, when you, but when you're arguing, your blood pressure goes up. That's part of fight or flight. 
it's it was it's evolved to do that because it wants to pump more blood into your muscles so you can fight or run away. But if you don't discharge that tension and you carry that argument from one argument to the next, and you keep what'll happen is is that that blood pressure that was created for your benefit as a survival response now will elevate for a long period of time. And if that blood pressure stays up, it'll damage the brain, the heart, the liver, the kidney. And I'll guarantee you every step of the way, you'll find an army of physicians that will gladly treat that. So you've taken a basic physiological system, an approach that was trying to help you. And by not letting it go, we've now set in motion a series of chronic diseases. So the blood pressure, high blood pressure is not the person's problem. I mean, you can treat it. And certainly we can change it with diet and diet does have a factor. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the truth of the matter is, unless you can let go of that physiological survival response and turn it down, turn down the volume, that blood pressure is going to be a chronic disease and it's not your problem. The blood pressure is not your problem. The problem is the fact that you've turned on a physiological system and have put it in a place where it's outlived its usefulness. And it's now turned, we've turned it against us when in fact it was set in motion for our survival and benefit. Make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Um, AJ, do we have any questions at all? Oh, oh uh, guys, if you have any questions, please put them in the chat with four question marks. Yeah, that'd be great. Ahead, you know, um, so, you, you know, you mentioned the caregiver stress. And so are, are, what are, are there resources, though, for people like because sometimes people have like a, an aging parent or a disabled child and they're not going anywhere anytime soon, you know, so it's right. It's not so like that's that that's that thing that I mentioned. That's something that perhaps you can't change that event. So mm -hmm. what you need to understand is, is that if you're going to be a caregiver, you better put yourself on that list. Because unless you're taking care of yourself while you're taking care of other people, you're going to have a problem. So this is where certain stress management techniques, whether it's meditation, walking, breathing, whatever you may do, and we can talk about some of that, you need to make sure you are doing that for yourself while you're doing everything you can to help your loved ones. Because look, you're doing a mitzvah. It's a beautiful thing. The problem is, and anybody that's been a caregiver knows that it can get overwhelming. It can be, sometimes it can be a 24 seven kind of thing and it can really take you out. And the problem is if you don't take care of yourself, you're not gonna be able to take care of anyone else. And so that's an important piece. Yeah, it's the old uh, cliche. I mean, it is a cliche, it's a cliche because it's true. It's, it's you know, the, the, uh, the, the cliche about the, you know, you're on a flight and then the oxygen masks drop down and we're always told to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first before helping other people. Now, um, you know, it's, it's an old chestnut, but the, the, it really elegantly illustrates exactly what Frank has just said. Um, so, for example, myself speaking personally, you know, I've, my my way of of discharging the stress of being a essentially almost a full-time carer now um is actually working out and working out hard um whilst also still doing my my sort of med, my my kind of uh, my meditations and, and things like that but i think the important thing is to realize that we're all individuals and therefore it may be that if somebody's going through an incredibly stressful situation 
asking that person to sit down twice a day and meditate twice a day for 20 minutes is not going to be something that they're going to either relate to or be able to find the time to do. So it does mean that we have to each find our way. And luckily, there are so many different tricks and tips and techniques that we can all employ as individuals that will then enable us to develop real strength, real resilience when faced with um, really insurmountable problems at times. Well, let me add something to this because, you know, we're addressing what we're calling all of these psychological factors related to stress. And I, I, we're going to step back one step because I, I, I always talk about this in what I call the three T's of stress. And I think it, it warrants a, a small discussion because these three T's are the kinds of stresses that they, they, they pretty much covered the stresses that we encounter. And the three T's are the following. One is called trauma, and that means internal damage or you know, problems within the body. The other are toxins, and the third is thought. So trauma, toxins, and thought. And what's intriguing is we only typically focus, for the most part, on thought, on that psychological piece. But for example, um, it's not only our awareness that is generating stress in the body, it's also the wisdom of the body's awareness that is generating stress. So for example, if I'm eating in a conventional way and I'm creating inflammation in the body and I have oxidative stress in the body because I'm smoking or I'm eating fried garbagey food and refined processed foods and so on, that will be a trauma in the body. And whether we're conscious of that or not, that's still eliciting a fight or flight response from the body. If I have toxic exposure, chemicals in the environment or in my home, or for example, let's suppose I'm eating a tremendous amount of animal fat and I'm creating the problem of insulin resistance. So now sugar levels begin to go up. Sugar, when it elevates, is one of the most toxic conditions in the human body. So insulin resistance from poor eating habits can create a toxic environment that elicits the fight or flight stress. And then, of course, we have thought. And so we tend not to look at the, you know, the trauma and the toxic component because, in a way, that's below our level of typical consciousness but it's not below the consciousness of the body. So the human body has got its own wisdom and its own awareness on top of our awareness. And all of that consciousness combines to generate this outcome of fight or flight stress. So when you're eating in the way we're recommending and you reduce inflammation and you reduce oxidative stress, you're remarkably reducing the need for the body's own fight or flight response. And this is very powerful because it plays a role even in, for example, the epidemic of weight gain. And, and I've talked about this a lot. When you have a fight or flight response to elevated sugar, your body will release the hormone of stress, cortisol, as much as it would do that if you were being attacked by a bear. But cortisol has a natural affinity for an enzyme in the body called lipoprotein lipase that causes that sugar to be converted into fat and weight gain. So here's a case where you know, and it's got a, a, a huge affinity for fat cells in the abdominal region. That's why that risky area of visceral and abdominal belly fat that happens in people is a byproduct of chemical toxic stress 
as well as psychological stress. And I lay that out because we need to have a broader vision of what the causes, what these stressors are, because no matter which one it is, whether it's trauma, toxins, or thought, the body will generate the same fight or flight response and the same adaptation response via the adrenal glands and so on that we haven't even discussed, but it's part of how the body sets that all in motion. So I just want to lay that out because uh, I, people need to know that you know when you're eating the way we're recommending, you're reducing a remarkable stress component. When you're cleaning up the garbagey stuff in your own home environment and all of the things that we get exposed to and pesticides and herbicides and all of that, you are remarkably taking a stand on removing major stressful, major stressors that the body in its wisdom is interpreting as a challenge and a threat, even if we're not, because we don't see it. You may not see the inflammation. You don't see the CRP levels going up in your blood. You don't see you know, cytokines being generated. You may feel it eventually as pain or discomfort, but when it's really being set in motion, it's below our level of awareness, but yet it's still triggering a major stressful response in the body. That's a very profound piece. It really is. I think it's something that's very often not spoken about. And it it's never spoken about. about. It, it truly yeah. is never really yeah. talked about. No, uh, I don't think people sort of really think about the impact of, uh, you know, the connection of food and, and stress in the way that you just so elegantly put it. Um, and I think it's a big eye opener for people. And it's yet another sort of rationale for eating the way that, you know, that we all talk about. Um, so I think that's absolutely fantastic. So, Frank, I, I think really, um, can we start now talking about some of the strategies uh, that people can yes. employ? Uh, that are really easy and simple and, you know, and, and are elegant and are things that people can actually do that are known to make big difference, sort of takeaway tools that they can actually integrate into their lives. Well, let's just keep, let everybody keep this in mind. Whenever you have the ability to do something in the body, you always have the ability to do the opposite of that something. So if you have the ability to create a remarkable relax, uh, a remarkable fight or flight response, we also have the ability to create what our good friend, Dr. Benson used to call the relaxation response. And the unfortunate thing about this is, is that we never were really introduced in our learning and our teaching and our growing up to the relaxation response, but we've all become debilitated experts of the fight or flight response. So this is very important. And, and for example, if I were to put electrodes on the skulls of everybody listening to this talk as we go along, um, and we measured the brain waves coming off, in the engagement in this level where we're talking and we're really engaging with thoughts and ideas, we are operating at what's called a beta level of consciousness. So the brain waves would have a certain amplitude and frequency. But as the body moves into more of a relaxation space, whether it's meditation, yoga, tai chi, sitting quietly, however you do that, those brain waves will move into what's called an alpha level. If they slow down more, they move into the theta waves of hypnosis and then eventually the deep, long, slow delta waves of deep sleep. So there's a rhythm and pattern to how the brain is responding to the different levels and states of consciousness. The intriguing thing about the alpha level 
is that it is basically a state of pure present time. And we've made the point that the only way we can be more effective in handling the stressful events is by being able to engage them in the present time instead of getting lost in the sorrows of the past or apprehensions about the future. So any technique that triggers that kind of alpha level becomes a remarkable thing that can be very useful and very helpful on a more day-to-day -day level. And probably the thing that is the most significant and simplest strategy is really working with the breath, working with breathing. You know, breathing is the most primal function that we have. You know, we can go a long time without food. We can go a fair amount of time without drinking. You can't go more than a few minutes without oxygen. So breathing, you can make the point, is the most nutritive function of the human body, of all living things. And interestingly enough, because of that, because it's such a primal function, it is tied directly to our state of emotion. And you know, techniques like yoga studies and Tai Chi and all of these ancient systems knew that and they would incorporate that. What it means is, is that you cannot breathe in a breathing pattern of anxiety and have a relaxed state of mind. It is impossible. But the other side of that is you can't breathe in a relaxed manner and have an anxious state of mind. And this is very, very important. And that's why these ancient systems have incorporated simple techniques of following the breath, you know, breathing slowly, bring, bringing the breath pattern down. And here's the reason why. When you look at fight or flight, the respiratory pattern of breathing is very rapid and shallow, because if you were going to be challenged and threatened by something, and you were getting ready to take a long, slow, deep breath. You'd be dead before you could take two breaths. So instead we do this. So breathing becomes very rapid and shallow. That breathing pattern in the brain is associated with the need and the necessity and the reality of the fight or flight response. So it will raise blood pressure, maintain anxiety and so on. If I bring that breathing pattern down, and I slow it down remarkably, I start creating what's called a parasympathetic response, where now the brain will interpret that it no longer needs the fight or flight response. And that's why sometimes doing slower, deeper breathing at bedtime, and I know you've taught yoga nidra techniques, which I'm sure you can talk about, where, you know, the Buddhists have that, that image of fight or flight as being, you know, the uh, monkeys running around in your head, you know, what I mean, this, this barrel of monkeys. And so how do you, you know, how do you slow that monkey mind? Well, breathing is the most direct approach. And so I usually have people do simple breathing techniques to begin with, because you don't need any equipment, you don't need anything very sophisticated, you just need to be able to sit in a relatively quiet place and following the breath. I do a particular technique called longevity breathing. Well, I will get down and that comes out of my Taoist training, but that'll, that'll bring breath down to something like two or three breaths a minute. Most of us are breathing about 15 to 20 respirations a minute. The discovery is that if you can get the breath down to about anywhere around six to 10 breaths a minute, you already are triggering a major relaxation response. Now, Benson used to use a mantra, which is another way of doing that, a repetitive word 
or a repetitive phrase. And the reason why focusing on something is important is because the brain likes to be occupied. And people always think that meditation means you have no mind. No, there's always thoughts coming in. But by bringing the attention back to a breath or to a mantra or to anything, a, a visualization process, you're occupying the mind and the brain enough where you know it will now allow you to settle into a deeper state of relaxation, much more of an alpha level away from the beta level that we typically occupy. And even the studies that have been done on meditation are very profound because it suggests that no more than about 10 to 12 minutes a day, totally, is enough to really change patterns of anxiety, depression, even promote longevity, even have an impact on the telomere length of our gene pool. And so you don't need tremendous amounts of time because a lot of people are not going to devote 20 minutes morning and evening. If you can do it, bless you. But it also means that you can work with breathing. You can slow things down by just sitting still, listening to music that you like. The bottom line is it's about stepping back from the chatter of our lives to allow ourselves to separate from this, this pattern of fight or flight that we've kind of etched and sculpted into the tapestry of our brain and nervous system. And by simple techniques, we can change it. It's not changing the events. The events that triggered your responses may still be there. But what's intriguing about meditation and relaxation response is that you no longer react and respond to them the same way. It's almost as if water, it's like water rolling off a duck's back. So the same stuff that got you so riled up before now doesn't seem to have the same impact, even though the event or the challenge may be on the surface exactly the same. So we have this inborn ability for relaxation response, and we need to have different ways that we can kind of identify with that and trigger that and allow this monkey mind to calm down and for the brain to realize it doesn't have to have this relentless fight or flight going on all the time, jacking up blood pressure, creating tension in the body, all of that. Mm, absolutely. Thank you for that. And um, it's very interesting that you mentioned the sort of the minimal. So, so what the research shows is that the minimal effective dose is of, of meditation uh, or mindfulness is 12 minutes a day. And it's believed really that the optimal dose is 20 minutes twice a day. But something that my students often ask me is, well, if I've got a client, so I, I, I teach people to become coaches in, in this field. And uh, so a lot of the people that I teach uh, will say, well, when I'm coaching a client in the future, uh, what if they can't sit still for 20 minutes? What if they can't sit still for 12 minutes um, and, and breathe? And so what about, can, can we break that down? Does it still work if we break it down to smaller chunks of, of just becoming present, just coming into the moment, becoming mindful? And the answer is yes. There's very, very good research that actually shows that if you can just, you know, perhaps you're standing in, in the queue at the checkout and just bringing yourself into the moment, into that time when you are fully present and you're not perseverating over the past and fears of the future but you're just here right here and now and you can you know you'll be there for maybe a couple of minutes three minutes let's say it still counts and if you can do that several times a day it has a cumulative effect so I think one of the things that puts people off the concept of meditation is the thought that or the fear that 
they have to sit still and, and be like a, a monk uh, somewhere up a mountain and, you know, contemplating his navel. We don't have to do that. You know, the, the modern era, it totally does equip us. Even in the this day and age of shorter attention spans, we can still do it and we can still do it meaningfully, adequately, and with a very strong physiological outcome. So any I think that the takeaway message really I wanted to share is that anybody can do this at any time. And it really is just a case of coming back to yourself, back to your center, and just starting by noticing what's going on around you. What are the sounds that you're hearing? What is it you're seeing? What are you feeling? Engaging all of those sensory inputs, because that will actually bring you into the here and now. And then when you can start to incorporate your breathing and following the breath, as you just so beautifully put it, Frank, that's the thing that will actually start to mount up and really, really support your stress response management abilities. You know, many years ago, when Thich Dan Han wrote The Miracle of Mindfulness, which is a phenomenal, simple, profound book, he, he made a point that you just emphasized, and I want people to really get this. It's not about separating necessarily from the world to meditate, is that when you have the mindset that we're addressing, as you brought, so you just spoke about so eloquently, where you become, where you identify the elements of the natural world that you're functioning within, every act becomes an act of meditation. Brushing your teeth becomes an act of meditation. Doing the dishes becomes an act of meditation. You know, I've done enough of this for so long that when I'm doing dishes and so on, I'm in that moment and that becomes, and I can feel my whole body. If I bring my attention to the detail of that, I can feel everything in my body let go. I could feel so that every single act that we participate in. So if you don't have time to sit and meditate, let's suppose you're going out and doing your morning walk. Don't bring the phone, leave the phone home. When I do my morning walk, I'm walking on everything that I see. So I'm observing bougainvillea. I see mangoes on the trees. I'm feeling that breeze. So what happens is your activity can be your meditative behavior. And so now what happens is instead of having this dichotomy of your busy active world and then your meditative world, you kind of start to fuse those where your whole world becomes a meditative world as you become attached to the elements of the moments of your experience. That to me is the true stress management because we're all gonna encounter as you made a point, things that are going to be challenges. There's no way to live this life without financial stresses, relationship stresses, all the things that come up, work-related stresses. But the more that we can be operating in a mindset of, the fact of, of this mindful meditative state, where even a normal walk introspectively becomes that, your conversation, hanging out with a loved one can become that. So, you know, when that becomes more of how you function normally, you've got it licked because then that whole process has become a part of you. And I'm very big on, you know, evolving the process of change because as that happens, we literally change the fabric of the nervous system we start patterning that nervous system in a different way so that the same things that so bothered us before no longer have that hold on us. 
when in fact they're the same events. And that's when you're really building in a resilience for survival. But in the meantime, the technique of taking some time, stepping back from the chatter of our lives are some of the tools that we set in motion to do that. So it could be just doing some slow, deep breathing. It can be working with a mantra, a repetitive phrase, like in the relaxation response. It can be any kind of technique like that, that you do. And I urge people to have an, a, a little, um, a little resource like that. I mean, there are so many things online now too, where you can get into stress response management kind of techniques, and it can be kind of a jump off point that you can bring into your life. But I urge people to understand that you've got to take this time for you. You've got to take this time where in a way you step back from the chatter of your life. So you can go into that divine space that exists within each of us and I love that phrase by Virginia Satir, who was one of the great family counselors in the United States over many, many years, where you go to that sacred, that sacred place within yourself that is called by your name, because we are fundamentally all incredibly sacred divine beings with egos that now we have all of the world stuff that have attached, but at our core, when you meditate, you find that place of stillness, that place of silence, that, that silent space of divinity that operates within each of us. And we have, a, by, by tapping into that on a regular basis, you will get to a point where even in your day-to-day -day experiences, your morning walk, your brushing of your teeth, you will be identifying with that. And as you do, that becomes woven more successfully into the tapestry of your own nervous system. And that's a beautiful thing when that begins to happen, because that's what feeds compassion and gratitude and so many other things that we know are so remarkably important. Mm. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I have a few, uh, I, I, because I believe in this so strongly, it, it's such a powerful and important thing. On my website, I just wanted to let people know that I've got some free um, downloads and so on. I have a Yoga Nidra uh, re recording for deep restorative sleep. Um, Yoga Nidra is a particularly interesting form of meditation because it's, it's a body scan. It comes very much uh, from very ancient Indian techniques where we start at the top of the body, we, we look at, we identify points on the body, but it moves quickly. It doesn't sort of hang around like uh, a, a particular sort of normal body scan that most people might be familiar with. So yoga nidra moves very, very quickly throughout the body. And it's a very interesting thing because what it does is it, it as Franka mentioned earlier about the, the monkey mind that jumps from this topic to this topic to this topic. And, and so it's very normal, everybody does that. Um, but yoga nidra really supports us, particularly if we are prone to getting caught up in the monkey mind type of thing, because it moves so quickly through the body. It actually means that that you are able to stop 
going over and over repetitive thoughts that often keep us from being able to fall asleep. And it really connects you to your body. It's a, a fantastic system. Um, generally speaking, the, most people will come in and say, hey, Jane, it's a great meditation, but I have no idea how it ends. So as far as I'm concerned, that's job done because clearly it's made them fall asleep. Um, it can be used with any age group as well. Um, I've had a lot of parents use it with children who were struggling to uh, sleep, particularly in lockdown, where the anxiety levels were particularly high, for example. Um, so, you know, that's a that's sort of that's a gift that's given with, with my blessing. So I'd love it if people were able to get that and share it with their loved ones, of course, as well. And, you know, there are other uh, beautiful meditations like Metta meditation, which is a loving kindness meditation. Again, you don't need vast amounts of time to do that. But but it's a form of meditation where we actually wish ourselves well and then we wish our loved ones well and then we go on to make beautiful loving kindness wishes to other people out there and so on it goes and and eventually ending up by supporting and wishing our planetary systems well and sending loving kindness out to the universe um, and you you know these are wonderful techniques that they may sound as though they're sort of lovey-dovey and airy-fairy and yes I mean that's all very nice to be able to put your mind into that sort of space but what's so fascinating about all of this is that the physiological response when we start doing techniques like yoga nidra or metta loving kindness meditation is that they have the most profound effects upon our well-being in every measurement that we can possibly take every physiological measurement we can take so these things are not to be sniffed at these are very serious approaches that actually massively contribute to our wellness and our longevity so um, i just wanted to flag that up you know if anybody wants to try something for free it is out there you don't have to subscribe to an expensive meditation app or anything like that um that's the beauty of all of this it's a little a, a beauty of what you were saying frank about your daily walk i do the same when i walk the animals and i listen to the bird song particularly fabulous here in north in Europe and now, now that we're it's April May time and are coming into May time which is when you know the dawn chorus is at its strongest um just going out and as you say not taking your phone with you but actually taking the time just to get out and connect with the all everything that's out there that you can actually see hear feel um these are the things that don't cost money it's easy all of these things are actually really quite easy and they're accessible to all of us yeah, let me touch on two things. The data on meditation is kind of intriguing because we talked about the hormone of stress that the adrenal glands release. We didn't really go into the adaptation response and it's not important right now, but cortisol, which is released as a major stress hormone with the simple meditative techniques, there's about a 50% drop in cortisol release. And it's very intriguing because cortisol will not only promote inflammation, but cortisol will block the leptin satiety signals that people normally have when they're eating. So overeating and compulsive eating follow quite readily from excessive cortisol stimulation. And meditation, it's kind of intriguing. The meditative stuff not only releases cortisol by half, but can release 40 to 50% of cravings that people can have because of that effect. It also ratchets down the a fear response in the amygdala, that part of the brain that's setting up the fear response. And the most profound measurement of stress is the thing we call heart rate variability. 
And we see that these simple techniques of breathing and meditation and even prayer will so, and what heart rate variability is very simply is everybody knows about heart rate, the number of times the heart beats per minute. What they don't realize though, is that when the heart's beating, there's a space in time between each beat. The longer that space is, the less stress the body is. So we find that meditation remarkably increases heart rate variability. It's the best single-handed measurement of stress. It's hard to do, though you have apps now on phones and things that can do it. So stress will affect the hormones, craving. It'll affect heart rate variability, the meditative behavior. And that can be done all with just slower, deeper breathing technique. And, you know, it's, intri it's intriguing because... The cravings for cigarettes and other things come up in a pattern, but they can be the strongest for a period of about one to three minutes. So if that's coming up and you can even do a little bit of a slow breathing technique in the moment, whether you're at your desk or wherever you are, and just bring that down or go to the john and do that, you can typically use a breathing technique to actually reduce craving in the moment. And that's kind of an intriguing piece without having to commit to this you know, what you think may be this big meditative process. So the impact of these techniques on craving, on weight loss, on satiety, on hormones of stress are all so remarkably profound. And all together, they help us, in a sense, refashion how we're responding to the events of our lives, how we, how we, you know, create our own frame of reference for those things. And they start to really back off. So I've, I've taught people those simple breathing techniques. And in one to three minutes, which is usually the peak time for craving, whether it's food, cigarettes, whatever, you can kind of get past that craving event. And that's a very, very powerful little tool to have. And I've taught a lot of people to do that. And I've used it a lot. And it works very beautifully. Because yes, most people, if you're, you know, if you're at work hassling with your boss, you can't say, excuse me, you know, you're pissing me off. I need to go meditate a half hour. You can't do that. But you can take a minute or two at your desk or in the john and work this just slow. And it literally will alter the craving mechanism because it takes an edge off of the cortisol release. It also modulates reactivity as well. So something that I know, I, I've been speaking to a lot of people who are carers uh, just recently, and, you know, at some point or another, most carers will get something called compassion fatigue. And it's this, this idea of just stopping and taking some deep breaths actually can be the difference between um, responding and responding as a, from a knee-jerk reaction, perhaps angrily or sarcastically or, or whatever it is, um, to actually being able to come back to yourself and to respond with, with compassion. Um, it does seem to break into that compassion fatigue uh, problem, uh, which is, it's a huge issue out there with, with carers who are full-time carers particularly. Um, so yes, it's, uh, it's, these are remarkable tools. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Frank. Is there anything else? Are there any other tips or techniques you could, you would like to uh, bring in, into this discussion at all? No, see, for me, the easiest thing for people to do is breathing. I mean, because you can teach mantras, you can teach a lot of technique, but the breathing stuff is the best gateway. Once you've kind of gone through that quite a bit, you get to a point where you're able to 
do the mindful moment stuff that we talked about, where in that moment, you can just kind of let things just kind of settle down. And on your walk or just sitting quietly in a space, uh, I like people to create a little space if they can in their homes where they know they can go to where they step back from the chatter of the of their day. I mean, think about it. We're also we're on the go. We're running like banshees a lot of the time. So finally, you get home. It's nice to just you know take that little bit of time where you take a few minutes and just step back from the chatter of your life. I do certain things for myself with alignment technique and simple breathing at times. But the bottom line is anybody can master these simple little approaches of just slowing down the breath, working with that breath, maybe putting on something gentle, some nice, quiet, peaceful music that allows you to just kind of just step back from the chatter of your day. You, you, you deserve that. You know, you, you owe that to yourself. And any place, any way you can find that, you know, it's wonderful. I, you know, I always tell people there was a time when I was raising five children we had 10 to 15 animals in a house. We had a four or five bedroom house. So I lived on Noah's Ark. And the only place I could find some respite and sanctuary was in the closet, the door shut with the dog scratching on the door. And I found peace in that closet space as well as I could have in, in a cathedral or any kind of other sanctuary. So all I'm urging you is just make it a priority. Make yourself a priority. Make this idea that, you know, you have this ability to create a relaxation response that counters this remarkably debilitating fight or flight that we've turned on endlessly. And by just stepping back from the chatter and doing some very simple things, you can refashion, you can reintegrate, recharge that entire neurological mechanism and your brain to kind of come out stronger, to be in a much better place. And, you know, the, the stress management tools are, are involving not only that, it's also about having gratitude. And it's also about laughing. Laughing is the best medicine. Laughing more is a major stress management tool. So, you know, uh, and, and if you poll people, you know, you, if you ask people generally, you know, how many times have you actually really laughed today? Uh, many times it's very little, if at all. And so, you know, these are these are things that we kind of take for granted and we overlook, but they're very powerful parts of what make us human and what makes the brain be at peace and at ease. And we need to engender more and more of that. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that's 100 percent true. It's very interesting, isn't it, that when we're very stressed, uh, we don't laugh. And, and it's ironic because, of course, you know, it is such a wonderful stress buster. So, yes, I, you know, one of the things I think that's so important is people are able to kind of find sources of laughter for themselves, whether it's particular films that always get them going or, you know, TV programs or what have you. You know, we have a lot of resources um, at our fingertips nowadays, thank goodness. Uh, so it is a very, very important skill to integrate into our lives and, uh, and then to have, you know, relationships with people who make you laugh, um, ideally with them, not at them. But, you know, that's a, that's a different story for another day, isn't it, Frank, my love? Yes. <laughs> AJ, are there questions or anything by anybody? Yes, there are questions. Thank you. I like this one. Mary Jean says, my daughter is pregnant and has a lot of stress. How does that affect the growing baby? She's about 24 weeks. Well, you know, the issue that's interesting about that, the stress will affect 
not only the release of hormones, but the stress will absolutely affect the microbiota of the gut and everything else. And there's a lot of chemistry and things that are being translated and transmitted between mother and baby. So my advice would be for that mother in her pregnancy to embrace some of what we're talking about. Because the truth of the matter is that's supposed to be a really lovely time where you're preparing an environment for this new life to come. And you're also creating this environment where it's being nurtured as it grows to come to fruition before it comes out into this world. And we now know that things happen in utero where babies are being affected by a lot of chemistry and changes and even uh, bacterial environments and so on that are being communicated between mother and baby. And uh, so, yes, it does have an impact. And my feeling is this is something that this young woman needs to kind of work with, think with, and, and adopt some ways of, of integrating a more peaceful, uh, ongoing experience. Now, if she's having, you know, physiological problems and all of that, medical problems, of course, that has to be addressed and fixed. But I think that if she can embrace some of these kinds of things we're talking about, with some techniques or some, you know, apps from the phone or some way that she can kind of bring that tension down for herself. It will help her and her baby. Terrific. Uh, Meg says, how do you let go of that physiological system that you talk about? Well, you see, you're not letting go of it. The brain is letting go of it. Uh, that's an important piece. We, we think we have conscious control over everything. What we consciously can do is really alter how we respond to certain things. But understand this, there's a part of the stress response that is part of what we call the automatic nervous system, which is referred to as the autonomic nervous system. So for example, the body normally responds to stress in an adaptation response that starts with an alarm. If the stress goes on longer, it has to resist it, so it resists it. And if the stress goes on too long, it gets exhausted. So that alarm resistance and exhaustion cycle of the adaptation response actually happens automatically. The brain and body doesn't want to take the risk that you're going to do the right thing. So that's etched into our behavior. So the bottom line is what we need to do is understand how we can change our relationship to the events or reframe the event in a way where we're looking at it in a different way so that now the body doesn't have to establish that automatic fight or flight response. The reason why that's ongoing and it's not letting go is because we're maintaining the same reaction to the events in exactly the same way. If you shift your reactivity, if you shift how you look at things, if you shift how you frame that event, a uh, classic example, you know, you're arguing with someone and all of a sudden, you know, you have these responses. If you can delay your response and then look at that person and realize that that's not you and, you know, you're looking and interpreting that in a different way, all of a sudden the brain no longer finds it necessary to react that way. So the letting go is something that the brain will automatically do if we can establish the conditions that no longer make it a demand by the brain to fight or run away. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's see if there's any more questions. This is really great stuff. People are just saying things very complimentary about. Thank you. Yeah, well, it is. It's, to me, it's one of the most important things I love to speak about. In fact, at the hygiene conference coming up in the summer, I'm actually doing a whole talk just on stress because nobody really addresses it the way it should be addressed. And it's really one of the most profound parts of health 
for all of us. Yeah. yeah. Sylvan says, how, Sylvan wants, wants to know, how about how we choose to think about the stressor? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the perception of the event. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is how we choose to think about that stressor creates a set of behaviors and experiences that become who we are. And they become a big part of who we are because they become woven into our nervous system in a certain way. So that's what we're exactly talking about. I can look at something and think about something in the most negative way. And yet I can look at that event in a certain way and say, well, it's not quite as bad as I thought that it was. And so all of a sudden my reaction is very different. So yeah, her, her question is exactly what we've been talking about. The way you frame and think about the experience or the event is going to dictate how the body and the brain react to the event. No question about it. A very important coping skill, actually, within stress response management is the ability to reframe. That's right. Um, so if you can, again, you know, the problem is when you are under, when, when a big stressor has happened, let's say, um, you may be so close to it that you can't actually necessarily step back and reframe. But the interesting thing is that they've shown that with things like the meditation, sorry, the relaxation response and so on, um, because it actually uh, changes the structure of the brain thanks to neuroplasticity, what actually happens is that the cerebral cortex thickens. And that means that we actually are then able to have that millisecond that enables us to step back and assess a situation. And rather than responding to a massive stressor from the from a really prehistoric um, central part of the brain, the amygdala and so on, what's actually happened is it buys us that little bit of time to be able to look at a stress or incoming and go, aha, I know what to do with this. Yeah. And we can actually then shape our response to it more easily. So this is yet another reason why the relaxation response and other similar uh, approaches are so, so important. It's actually physically restructuring the brain when we, see, when we practice. See, we, have, we have a midbrain, which is the reactive part of the brain, which is where a lot of addiction and, 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 and uh, automatic reactivity occurs. And, and a lot of our survival instincts are etched into that part of the brain. But we have a frontal cortex and a prefrontal cortex, the highest part of this computer, that is really what we call the proactive portion of the brain. It just so happens that in a lot of stress response, we're not proactive, we're just living in that reactive mode. And so as, as Janie pointed out, as you make these kinds of changes, you enable the proactive prefrontal part of the brain to be more in command again, rather than losing its command to the reactive responses of our limbic system, because we're really reacting in a way because we feel that our survival is challenged. When you reframe these situations and you can step back, now the more commanding, more, uh, if you will, uh, more soothing, control, proactive part of the brain can actually oversee the event more effectively, and you don't need to react the same way. So it's about breaking the reactive patterns by really understanding that you have this incredible ability for proactive free will that can literally oversee these events and make changes in how you respond to them. Mm -hmm. 
That is great. Well, guys, thank you so much. This was a wonderful presentation. Janie, do you know what you're going to talk about next month? And will Frank join us again? Oh, gosh, uh, let's, I'll tell you what, Frank and I will have a brainstorm on that and uh, see what we can uh, come up with. But yes, I mean, Frank, if you're available, let's go for it. I think well, we should we'll, definitely. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, depending on what you want to talk about. I'm always available and I love coming on the show with AJ. So yes, anytime I can, I will. Just I, I, Exercise is one of the best stress relievers we have. And, you know, it's basically free. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And not only that, you can combine exercise with this little introspective part that we talked about, and it becomes an unbelievably powerful tool for stress response management. Absolutely. No question right. about it. Well, thank you both so much. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. when my guest is Dr. Scott Harrington for Vegan Doc Talk. And he'll be talking about the scoop about poop. Don't you love that, you guys? The scoop about poop. <laughs> my favorite topic. Fabulous. Yeah. Take care, thank everyone. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.